Okay. Let's review. Let's review. Chapter 1. It says a bunch of stuff about Tzadik Rosh which I don't understand yet because I don't understand it yet. And it introduces the concept of the second soul, or the, rather the two souls, and introduces the first soul first, which is the yeah, Nefjabam is the animal soul, which is that drive for self-preservation. Chapter 2, it introduces the second soul, which is the drive for... Connection to God. Yeah, I would say even more than connection to God, just to become one with God. Just lose yourself in God, yeah. Nefjabam godly soul. Chapter 3 was the composition of the godly soul. Remember the three intellectual components, the seven emotional components. Chapter 4 were the modes of expression of the godly soul, the garments, thought, speech, and action. Chapter 5 was the food of the godly soul, that is Torah study. Chapter 6 was everything we learned about the godly soul and its components and its modes of expression, except now in the animal soul, just that flip, that mirror image, remember that? And we got the definition for holy and unholy, Remember chapter 6? Okay. Then chapter 7 and chapter 8, we spoke about the macrocosm, about good and evil around us, meaning things that are holy, things that are unholy, and things that are not holy yet. And that basically brought us to the end of the first eight chapters, which I call the, the lexicon, or the, uh, the word bank for the Tanya. Then chapter 9... We had the metaphor of the, you remember? City. The city, yeah, the small city. Two kings are fighting. They both want complete control. Very good. Chapter 10, we learned about which persona? The Benny? No, two types of tzaddikim. Two types of tzaddikim. We learned about the tzaddik, the one who has no yetzahara. Either he neutralized it or he actually converted it to another Yetzirah Chapter 11, we learned about the Rasha, yeah, two types of Rashaim, the one who has intermittent regret and the one who has no regret at all. And then in chapter 12, we introduced whom? The Benini. Chapter 12, we introduced the Benini. And then in chapter 13, who do we talk about? Bain. The Bainini. And now, now we're on chapter 14, and who are we going to continue to talk about? Okay. Bainini and Bainini and more Bainini. Because that's what the book's about. It's called Sefer Shal Bainim, right? Okay. All right, so let's talk about the Bainini. Can I just ask you something on this? Yes. Yeah. Is it fair to say that no Jew is really a Russia for so that we don't really ever encounter Russia Varalo. Let's, okay, the question was, is it fair to say that you don't know anyone who's really a Russia Varalo, which is like the worst, lowest. Um, I wouldn't make a categorical statement like that. What I would say is that, I don't know, what's, what's practical relevance? Because I think of Russia Varalo as like pure evil. Like, just no regrets. 
And a Jew is not capable of being a Rosh Well, it says even about the Rosh Hashanah that, you know, he has an Efesh Golakis, it's just he sort of uh, exiled it from his consciousness. So he has, he has the capacity, the potential to get back that conscience. He's just sort of uh, chased it away. So he could, he could always do Tshuva, even the Rosh Hashanah could do Tshuva. Let's put it like that. He's redeemable. Okay. The Bainini, the Bainini, the Bainini, the Bainini. Okay. Here's what I would like to do. Chapter four, because there's three chapters, actually four chapters about the Bainini. I mean, the whole book's about the Bainini, but what are we bringing out in chapter 14 that we didn't already find out in chapters 12 and 13? Um, and I can say it in a sentence, but then I want to try to illustrate it through a, an activity here. Um, in one sentence, it is that... The Bainini doesn't have to like what he's supposed to like. He can even dislike what he's supposed to like and even like what he's supposed to dislike as long as he does what he's supposed to do and doesn't do what he's not supposed to do. Okay. Does somebody here have a food? that you really, really, really dislike? Something that makes you just... Hmm? I just need one person. Yeah. What is it? Tomatoes? How, how, just to make sure, I, before we run with this as our example, I just want to check out a couple of things. First of all, you're not allergic, right? Okay, good. I wanted to make sure, because if you're allergic, that's different. I just want to make sure that it's a personal aversion, that you just dislike it. Okay. Um, I want to make sure, first of all, that it's not something that's prohibited by Jewish law. So tomatoes, no, not, not generally. Um, and also it's not prohibited by your doctor. So you're not allergic. Okay, fine. So technically, there's nothing stopping you halakhically or medically from eating tomatoes, but you really, really don't like tomatoes. And just to make sure this is going to work as an example, do you, do you eat tomatoes? So if I'm in a public setting, yeah, I won't pick them out of a salad. Right. I think it's rude. I'll, I'll eat them, but I... I, I, I need a bunch of water. It's very difficult for you. Okay. I don't. I don't care for it. Don't care for it. Okay. If I do revolt. Like if I make yeah. a salad, I'll put cherry tomatoes in because like that, I know where they're not going all over the salad. <laughs> no, because I, I won't not serve them in my house, but I right. don't care for okay. them. So I overcame my. I can't have it anywhere near me. You can have it near you, but really, you'll go to great lengths to avoid. Personally, tomatoes, personally, because you find it revolting. I, not <laughs> not your thing. Okay. That's great. That's perfect. This will work. Okay. This will work. Okay. So here's here's what we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna have a bet. The bet goes like this. The bet is that. You're going to have to get yourself to love tomatoes. And how will we determine that you love them? There will be a lie detector test, a polygraph, which is 100% accurate for the purpose of this hypothetical scenario. And 
if you will, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about your love for tomatoes, and if you will successfully um, answer that you love the tomatoes in all sorts of different ways, just to make sure that it's really, really true, you're going to win a million dollars. It's a bet, though, because it's not just a prize, it's you, you have skin in the game. If, if you fail the lie detector test, if you don't love tomatoes, you're going to owe me a million dollars. What are the measures? Hmm? What's the measure of love? We have a whole battery of questions. about. We ask you about your love of tomatoes. It's about 40 or 50 questions that a person who loves tomatoes would answer a certain way. And you're, you're answering all these questions on a polygraph. So we will know, indeed, if it is a sincere love or you're just paying lip service. Okay. That's bet number one. You follow it? You follow the scenario? Okay. Bet number two. Bet number two is you do not have to tell me anything about your feelings for tomatoes. Your feelings for tomatoes, in fact, are irrelevant to bet number two. All that is relevant to bet number two is that every single day for a year, excluding Jewish fast days, you must consume a kazayas, about one ounce, of tomatoes every single day. Except for a fast day, you will have to eat an ounce of tomatoes for a year. If you go for 364 days and you wimp out, and you can't take it the last day, and you say, I, I, I can't go on anymore. You lose the bet, you owe me a million dollars. But if you can eat tomatoes every day for that year, at the end of that year, you will win a million dollars. You got that scenario? Hmm? Everyone understands the... Okay. Scenario number three. Scenario number three. We're going to do the lie detector test, like in bet number one, but with one change. We're not going to do it right now. We're going to do the lie detector in a year from now. In a year, we're going to reconvene, and we're going to see if you love tomatoes a year from now. And during that year, you can employ whatever methods you believe might be effective in achieving that uh, love of tomatoes. It's, I won't tell you how to do it. You, you do it however you want to do it, but you have a year in order to create that feeling, and then you're going to be tested on it a year from now. Okay, everyone understands that scenario? Okay. So we have three scenarios, three hypothetical bets Three hypoth hypothetical ways to either win or lose a million dollars. Here's my question. Take the three scenarios and tell me one, two, and three, or A, B, and C. Which one of those 
is the best bet for you, meaning the best bet for you and the worst bet for me. Which one is the worst bet for you, meaning the best bet for me? Bet one is the worst bet. Okay, so you say bet one is the worst bet for you. Because I, I haven't had a chance to cultivate some type of liking towards okay. what I don't like. So bet one <laughs> is the worst bet for you. Yeah. Because you haven't had a chance. It's right now. It's on the spot. And also, let's be clear, what is it that you have to accomplish right now on the spot? A love, an emotion. So yeah, I agree. That is the worst bet for you. And it's, a, it's the best bet for me. Right. right. Because barring some type of miracle, literally, there's no way you're going to win bet number one. It, just, it doesn't happen. You cannot will yourself even for a million dollars. Think about it. A million dollars is high stakes motivation. But you can't just will yourself to change your emotion. You have an aversion to tomatoes. And in one minute, you're just going to, mm, no, okay, it's all gone. I love them. No, you love the million dollars, but it's not going to change the fact that you don't love the tomatoes. You would not pass that lie detector test. I would win the million. You would lose it. It's the worst bet for you. No question. What's the best bet for you? Worst bet for me? Probably number three, because I have a motivation at the end of the three hundred at the end of the year, and I can do whatever I need to do to change that emotion within me. Or not change it, not change it, to work on... Number two. Number two. Number two? To change the emotion. An ounce for 365 days a year, and then after... Yeah, but no, but you didn't change anything, because after that, you don't have to eat the tomato. But that was... So that's the best Yeah, let's clarify. In bet number three, there is no tomato eating involved. Do you... We don't test it by having you eat tomatoes. There's no tomato eating. It's purely it's emotional. It's a change of your mindset. It's a, no, not your mindset, your emotion. Emotion. Change of your emotion. In bet number two, there is tomato eating, a lot of it. No emotional. But there's zero emotion. Zero emotion. Yeah, there's absolutely no emotion. That's the easiest. Yeah. Right. Right. But then I'm not, I, from what Rabbi Tab is trying to show, you're not really gaining anything from it. You're getting a million dollars. Action. dollars. Action. I'm asking you, where are you going to win the million dollars easiest? Probably number two, but mm -hmm. yeah. The action number is what's two. necessary to win. Yeah. As opposed to changing your emotion. And it's easier. Which is harder. Easier than the action is easier. Number two is Number two is easiest. the best bet for you. If yeah. I were coaching you, I would advise you bet number two because... It's a simple discipline. You just force yourself to eat the tomato. Of course you're hating it, but a million dollars is a lot of motivation to go through whatever displeasure you're going to experience for the few minutes you're eating that ounce of tomato every day. And, and then you're done. And then you're done. You win. And which bet, by process of elimination, is sort of in between? Number two. Number three. Number three is harder than bet two because you have to change emotions, not behaviors. And you're not given a direction. Hmm? And you're not given a direction. It's very hard for you to try to love something. Well, I, I don't give the direction. You know, I don't tell you how to change right, your emotions about it. In order to, yeah, you say it makes it harder? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, then, then uh, let, me, let me change it because I don't want that to be part of the, the parable. 
Um, if you want a method, I would give you a method. So a how-to book. I would give you a how-to book for changing your emotions about it. And nevertheless, what I would say is bet number three is harder than bet um, one because... I mean, I'm, hold on a second. Bet number three is harder than bet number two because bet number two is all behavior and bet number three is emotional. However, it's easier, bet three is easier than bet number one because bet number one is change your emotions like that. And bet number three, at least you're given some time to work on changing your emotion. In but one, you don't eat the tomatoes either? In one, you don't eat tomatoes either. Okay. Right. So in chapter 14, one of the things we learn about Bainini is that anyone can be a Bainini. Why? Because in order to be a Bainini, you do not have to change your emotions. The emotions are not directly and immediately under our control. Now, I'm, I'm making sure to say directly and immediately because as we go on in Tanya, we will discuss how to start to change our emotions. But what I mean by they're not directly and immediately under our control is, you know, you had the million dollars, that's a high incentive for changing your emotion, and nevertheless, you cannot will yourself, even with a high-level incentive. Um, it's not a question of motivation. I, I want, okay, let, let's talk about what we're really talking about here. Let's just say it, okay? So Hashem gave me 613 commandments. In an ideal world, I would be, you know, like really passionate about all those commandments. I would really love doing all the 248 positives, and I would really detest the idea of transgressing any of the 365 negatives um, in an ideal world. And, and if indeed I were such a person who had extreme love to do every one of the 248 positive commandments, an extreme dread and, and disgust to transgress one of the 365 prohibitions. If that, that was my emotional state, what would you call me? What is that? That's the tzaddik. That's the tzaddik. The tzaddik is the one who has real emotional motivation in line or aligned with Hashem's will. Yeah. See, if Hashem doesn't like it, the tzaddik doesn't like it. If Hashem likes it, the tzaddik likes it. <clears throat> but it's hard to sustain action when you don't believe in it or love it. So the Bainini, so. the Bainini, you point out correctly, it's hard to sustain the action in the absence of having a passion. And, and, and we will get to that issue. That does become an issue. But at least right now, remember, we just were introduced in chapter 12 to our first real tool. Remember, remember back when we, two weeks ago we started chapter 12, and I said this is our first real tool for our, for our toolkit. Remember what that was? They have this instinctive... The instinctive what? Maya Shalat Alalev. That the brain rules over the heart. Okay, so this is Maya Shalat Alalev. Maya Shalat Alalev means that... It doesn't matter what my lave, what my heart desires. I might, I might be attracted to that which is prohibited to me. Mm -hmm. 
And if I were a tzaddik, I wouldn't be. I would be revolted by whatever is prohibited. And, furthermore, I might be turned off by things that are obligatory to me. And if I were a tzaddik, I wouldn't be. If I were a tzaddik, I'd be very excited about all the things I'm obligated to do. Because my emotions would be aligned with the Ratzanalian, with the supernal will. But the, but, but the Bainini is not so. And nevertheless, because the Bainini has this, well, not the Bainini, because we all have Maya Shaltalalev. Remember, we, we established this. The Maya Shaltalalev is not a unique thing, it's universal. It's inborn, it's innate, it's natural, it's human, it's universal. We all have Maya Shaltalalev. So the Bainini doesn't have to exercise anything that anybody else doesn't have. Doesn't, Benini doesn't have to access anything that, that, that not everybody has. What the Benini uses to be a Benini is that which everybody has. And that is the ability to say, hey, Bobola, it's okay that you don't like the mitzvah. Don't worry about it. Or, it's okay that you don't like the tomatoes. Nobody's forcing you to like tomatoes, but you got to eat them. Now, tomatoes, you don't really have to force yourself to learn to eat tomatoes, because there's no mitzvah to eat tomatoes. But, let's say, tomatoes is our marshal, it's a parable here for mitzvahs, then, you know, you don't have to enjoy every mitzvah. Sometimes you do, sometimes you have a tzaddik moment. What do you call that when you actually want to do the same thing that Hashem wants you to do? That's like a little tzaddik moment, right? But, you don't have to always want to do what Hashem wants you to do. And, the, the, by, by the same token, it's okay, as a Benini, to like something that Hashem doesn't want for you. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm being honest, emotionally, I'm not turned off by that prohibited thing. I, I, I think... I think it's very appetizing. I think it's very interesting. But I'm not going to go there. Not in action by doing it, God forbid. Not in speech by, like, you know, talking about it. And not even in thought by fantasizing about it. I'm not going to go there. Why? Even though I would, hey, if I would find out, hey, guys, we made a mistake. You know that thing that we said is prohibited? It was a typo. And I'd be very relieved, because I think I like it. Nevertheless, it's not happening. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because my brain rules my heart, and that means that even when you have an emotion, you don't have to act on it. You can do things you don't like, and you cannot do things that you would like. And that's why everyone can be a Bainini. Because in order to be a Bainini, you're not being asked to change your emotions. Changing your emotions is very difficult, if not impossible, especially the way that we're talking about changing them on the spot, that's impossible. You can't will yourself to change your emotion. But you can will yourself to action, or inaction, as it were, depending on what is called for. Yes, you can will yourself. the life is Will power, at least at this point. I'm foreshadowing a little bit. What's the word? What's the word you're saying? The second one, Moach. Moach Shalit Al Halev. The brain rules, exerts dominance 
over the heart. Doesn't transform the heart, doesn't co-opt the heart. Shalit, it is dominating. Because the heart's got its thing, the heart's got what it likes. And it still likes it, or dislikes it. And the brain is forcing the heart not to get its way, and willing behaviors that are incongruent with the emotions. In other words, we are being hypocritical in the, in the noblest sense of the word. Well, you don't really mean it. You're, you're right, I don't really mean it. You're lucky. You're lucky you don't see what I'm like when I do everything that I mean. <laughs> you don't want to see me when I'm being so natural. Yeah. Um, the intellect gives birth to the emotions. So when we say we're forcing ourselves to do a mitzvah, to do whatever is right, eventually, knowing that it's right mm -hmm. and constantly mm -hmm. doing it, shouldn't that eventually... That's a fantastic question. Yeah, that's right. Okay, the question is... The intellect gives birth to the emotions. And by the way, I'm going to push you on that. Where do you know that from? I thought, you know, from here. Yeah, from here, yeah. <laughs> but, but in this class, you have to say the number of the chapter. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. This is chapter three. This is chapter three. Yes, that's true. The intellect does give birth to the emotions. And, and you're right. And I'm going to foreshadow something here, which is really a spoiler. But later on, not even so far later in the Tanya, we're going to talk about Maya Shalatalev a little bit differently. We're going to talk about using our mind, using our intellect to meditate and create the emotions that we want to create, even as a baby. Okay, so I have just... But, 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 but we're not there yet. Right now, right now, I'm, 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 I'm going to ask you to take that idea and put it on the shelf, and I'll tell you why. Because right now, I'll tell you why. Because right now, remember when we first started, I said, you know, Tanya is like a yechidus with the Alter Rebbe. It's like going into the Alter Rebbe and getting guidance, being mentored. So really imagine Tanya as being a progression. That, remember we talked about it like cookbook and not encyclopedia? So really imagine like this. First things first. The first tool I'm going to get is the first tool I'm going to need. So let's not talk about later developments. Let's stick right now with this. Right now, all I know, and this is extremely liberating, if I never knew it before, is that impulse control is a completely valid approach to serving God. And that all of a sudden I'm liberated from my guilt over not having the right intentions all the time. Being attracted to that which is prohibited and being not so motivated to do that which is, which I am, in which I am obligated. And finding out, that's fine, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your emotions. That's fine. Remember, you're pregnant with twins. Yeah, you have this animal soul, and it has all types of feelings. And don't worry about it, you know? You know what they say, feelings aren't facts. Feelings aren't facts. Or, don't. Or facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. I like that. So don't worry. Is it similar to the concept that your Yitzhara, like, is it similar to the to the concept that a Jew is not punished for having a bad thought, but they they are rewarded for having the good thoughts and the good yes, actions? It is, yes, it is. Yes, it is aligned with the same concept. For, yes, that's correct. That's correct. 
Right, that's, I think, your whole analogy here with her, with her tomato aversion, the whole story. I think there's, like, so much more to it because these are all hypotheticals and very one-dimensional. All, all three of these scenarios that you describe, um, they actually, they're actually, like, psychologically reversed, reversible. Because if somebody, you know, pushes themselves into changing a behavior, right, then, you know, eventually they can get over what's behind that. You know what I'm saying? It's... it's That's true, and to some extent, you can reverse engineer it. That through habituation, behavioral habituation, you can uh, sort of work backwards and rewire the emotions. You can, to a certain extent. But but the point we're making here is, even if you don't, even if it continues to be a struggle, even if your entire life, you will never really be emotionally congruent with this mitzvah, or this group of mitzvahs. Or, you know what, in theory, there could be a Benini who doesn't have a cheshek, who doesn't have passion in any mitzvah. But you also have to and sell it's it still to yourself. a Benini. You have to sell it to yourself. All you have to sell to yourself is the desire to do what Hashem wants. The desire to do what Hashem wants. But what if you're wired with a desire to not do what Hashem wants? But not not do what Hashem wants, but to want something sinful. And you're wired that way. The tendencies people have. We're, we're all. No, not all of us are wired to be sinful. Some more than others. Well, well, it's it's not all of us are wired to, to want things that we shouldn't thing. want. No, no. Oh, for so. a we are. Well, okay. First of all. Let, let me clarify. I'm speaking about like a specific thing. Okay, so let me let me clarify something. How are they supposed to rewire themselves? No animal soul is wired to sin. Sin means I'm doing it because it's wrong. No animal soul does something wrong because it's wrong. Or I should say, no animal soul naturally desires something wrong just because it's wrong. The animal soul, like we described, is just about self-preservation. What's going to make me safe? What's going to make me comfortable? And the animal soul says, look, I'm sorry, I can't help it. This thing might be wrong, but if it's wrong, I don't want to be right, because this is what I feel will make me comfortable. This is what's going to make me feel safe. This is what's going to make me feel secure. So the animal soul doesn't want sin. It's actually very... It's like sin is an irrelevant term. So is mitzvah, by the way. I'm saying if it's wired to want something that biblically is sinful. Let's just say it. Why don't we just say the word? I'm just saying, like, God wired that person that way, so... But what I'm saying is everybody's animal soul is wired to want to do whatever it is that I feel will make me comfortable. It's more than comfortable, happy happy, fulfilled, whatever it is. Remember, remember, in Tanya, things that we think of, that we normally think of, as being very lofty motivations, in Tanya, turn out to be extremely selfish motivations. So if you say, I'm not doing this for my pleasure, I'm doing this because of a deep sense of fulfillment. Ladies, we've been learning Tanya long enough. Let me ask you a question. A deep sense of fulfillment. Is that godly soul or animal soul? Animal. That's animal soul. 
At one time I was teaching a group and uh, I was trying to bring out this idea. Like the animal soul is like, the animal soul is not just the base biological, you know, body pleasures. The animal soul can even be fairly refined. It's not about what you want. It's about who you want it for. If it's for yourself, it's animal soul. If it's for God, even to your own detriment, so to speak, then it's the godly soul. So at one time, I brought in a, uh, you know the Maslow's hierarchy? So the Maslow's hierarchy, for those who don't know it, is, it's like a triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle, at the base of the pyramid, are the most basic needs, like Water, food, uh, yeah, or like, like breathing, let's say. So if somebody can't breathe and you say to them, hey, what do you want to get for lunch? They're like, well, you know, I have more pressing matters right now. I can't breathe. But once I'm breathing, then we can talk about lunch. And then it's like after you're breathing and then it's like, uh, okay, where are we going for lunch? But somebody wants to come to you and say, hey, where are you sleeping tonight? Well, hold on a second. If I don't know where my next meal is coming from, i got to deal with that first, and then I'm going to worry about shelter. Okay, so there's a hierarchy of needs. And then after you get all your bodily needs, you know, you, have, you can breathe, you, you have what to eat, you have where to sleep, then you get to sort of more intangible needs like com uh, camaraderie, uh, social contact, that kind of stuff. It's not physical, but it's, it's a higher level, it's more emotional. And then you go higher and higher, uh, and then finally the very tip, tip, top, of the pyramid is self-actualization. You know, doing things that you find meaningful. That's the highest level of need. But Maslow's hierarchy is that, you know, his theory is that you don't go for self-actualization. You don't look for meaning until you have dealt with the lower level needs. At any rate, I, I brought this into a class and I asked them, where on the pyramid is the cutoff? Like, draw a line between animal soul and godly soul. Nowhere. But it's funny because when people look at it, if they haven't learned Tanya yet, um, or they haven't gotten very deeply into it, they, they sort of pick some level where they feel the needs, the self-serving needs are sufficiently not, you know, bodily, and it's more like intangible, and they're like, okay, that's spiritual enough. And then they make that cut off there. But the truth is, the whole hierarchy of needs is about my needs. So it's all animal soul. What is an animal soul? Animal soul is my hardwiring to take care of my needs, which was given to me by God for my own survival. If it's godly soul, then by definition, it has nothing to do with my needs. Not even very lofty needs like the need to feel fulfilled. Fulfilled through giving to another person, you're saying? Even is? being fulfilled by doing mitzvahs is animal soul. Right. So it's only the godly soul doesn't do mitzvahs for a sense of fulfillment. Right. The godly soul does mitzvahs because that's what a godly soul does. You don't think God made it feel good? Yeah, God made chocolate cake feel good. <laughs> no, but what I'm, I'm asking is... If, I'm not sure if you say this in Tanya, but if the ultimate level is a kind of clarity, mm -hmm. would you, if you got to the highest level, actually feel good 
doing everything in keeping with godly, um, you know, with the godly desires. On the highest level, you wouldn't feel good. On the highest level, you feel peace. You're just one with God. On the highest level, you become one with God. Which means what? Which means you have zero feelings? You have all the feelings. What does that mean? What, what's the manifestation that you feel good or not? Feel There's no you. There's no you. You feel connected. Your joy and feeling good is godly. You're saying you become like a watermaton? No. 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 What I'm saying is what you're describing is a subjector, subjective, uh, like observer type thing. Like, there's me, and then there's God and his mitzvahs. And then a, the degree to which God's mitzvahs make me feel good. What I'm talking about, godly soul, godly soul is, there is no, there's no separation. There's no subject-object. There's no two parties, it's one party. One entity. At any rate, let, let me just clarify here, wrap up what we said, and I want to move on to one or two other points that are in chapter 14. Everyone can be a Bainini because in order to be a Bainini, all you have to do is exert your will over your behaviors. You do not have to exert your will over your emotions. In fact, you cannot change your emotions through will. Now, there are ways to change the emotions. We're not getting into it right now. Okay, that's later. Right now, we've been given a tool. It's called the brain rules the heart. The brain rules the heart for now. For now. That means go ahead, feel whatever you're going to feel. It's irrelevant. We were saying feelings aren't facts, so the facts aren't concerned with your feelings. All right, don't worry how you feel. Will yourself to choose the right behaviors. And since everybody has that degree of impulse control, everyone can be abandoned. It's just a question of doing it consistently. According to this, we now understand another thing that was mentioned early, early, early in the book. In fact, the first line. The first line of chapter 1. We didn't get into this in detail because I think when we started off in the first chapter, I wanted to move quickly. But the first line of the book, chapter one, Tanya, the Seif Peregimel Nida. Tanya means it was taught in a Braisa, in a teaching of the sages of the Mishnah, but not in a Mishnah. Where the Seif Peregimel Nida, the end of chapter three of the tractate Nida. What does it say? Mashbiyin Oisei, Titzadik Valtirosha. They administer an oath. To whom? To the Neshama. Before the soul comes into this world, they give an oath. Be a Tzadik and don't be a Rosha. Vafilo Kolailam Emir Lacha. Even if the whole world will tell you. Ato tzaddik, you are a tzaddik. Yebanecho kirosha. You should see yourself, evaluate yourself as a rosha. Now there are a few different questions about that teaching, and we will not answer all of them yet. But one question is answered in chapter 14. 
Some of them are answered even later in the book. But in chapter 14, at least, we have an answer already to one question. One question is, why does it say, be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha? It sounds redundant. If you will be a tzaddik, then automatically you're not a rasha. There are a bunch of other questions about the about this oath as well, and we will merit Hashem when we get to that. We will. Is it, out. Is it about surmerah and asay type that you have to first surmerah in order to? It's about behavior and emotion. When it says be a tzaddik, you know what it means. Let, 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 let's put it this way: when we talk about a tzaddik, when we talk about what makes a tzaddik unique, what are we really talking about? What what part of self sets the tzaddik apart from all other people? Not his actions. No, Benjamin also has his emotions. His emotions. What sets a tzaddik apart from others is the emotions. So equate tzaddik with emotions. So the first part of the oath is be a tzaddik. The first part of the oath is control your emotions. Like what you're supposed to like. Dislike what you're supposed to dislike. Now, realistically, what are the odds that we're going to fulfill that oath? That we're going to come down, the soul's going to come down to the world in a body with all the temptations and distractions and that we're going to actually manage to be a tzaddik, to like what we're supposed to like and dislike what we're supposed to dislike. What are the odds? Very, very, very. How can we even ask them to swear to emotionally be attached to something? <laughs> Statistically unlikely. You know, there were uh, a couple of guys in Helm, and one of them said to the other, You know, Chaim, seeing as how difficult life is, Sometimes I think it would be better to never have been born. And the other guy from Chelm says, Yeah, true, but how many guys are that lucky? Like one out of a thousand? <laughs> how many guys do you know? So how many people, you know, are really a tzaddik? It's that in, in chapter 1 it quotes the Medrash, which says, Hashem saw there are very few tzaddikim. He dispersed them. He sort of, uh, throughout, the, you know, throughout the generations, throughout the timeline of history, he planted the tzaddikim here and there. So at any rate, the first part of the oath is control your emotions. But we got to be realistic about the fact that most of us, the vast majority of us, are not going to succeed. And then there's plan B, which is, well, at least, Rasha, don't be a Russia. Don't act on it. Right. Don't act on it. So it's interesting. Part of the oath is I'm going to try to do something that I know I'll never succeed at. And it's part of my oath. I made a promise. So it's sort of built into the promise. You're not going to accomplish it, but you're not allowed to not try. That's why even a Benini, to some extent, is supposed to try to cultivate a Geschmack in mitzvahs and try to convince himself to have an aversion to be turned off by things that are prohibited according to Torah. And, and 
Chazal, our sages, coach us in these types of things. Like, they tell us to contemplate the fact that all the pleasures of this world, all the delicacies, all the good food, that it's fleeting, that it, 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 that it rots. So, what's the point of thinking about something like that? Am I really going to turn myself off from food so I become like a tzaddik who, who, who can't... You know what a tzaddik... A tzaddik, when, look, tzaddik looks at a piece of food. All they can see is a potential mitzvah. All they see is that amount of caloric intake equals this amount of mitzvah doing. That's all they see. It's not that they only focus on that. That's all that registers with them. Okay? So, I got, I got to admit... Is it going to ever happen that I'm not going to have an animalistic reaction to the food, that I'm going to know that it tastes good, that I'm going to know that I like the feeling of being full? Okay, but to whatever extent I can cultivate an emotional aversion to the idea of, you know, pleasure for the sake of pleasure, like it's, I mean, if I feel it, okay, I, I, I end up feeling pleasure. But to actually to, to value it as an as a end in and of itself as a goal, as something to pursue, no, that should gross me out a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Now, is it ever going to totally gross me out? No. 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 But that's what it means, the part of the oath, be a tzaddik, is to whatever extent you can try to get yourself emotionally aligned with Hashem's will for you, do, do, the, do the best you can. Do the best you can. It's not you'll make life, life easier. You're obligated. This is what Hashem wants from you. This is what He sent your soul into the body for. Remember, your soul before it went into a body only likes what Hashem likes and dislikes what Hashem dislikes. Hashem could have kept your soul up there. Hashem sent your soul down here so that you can like what He likes and dislike what He dislikes under adverse conditions. Now, are you, gonna ever, are you going to ever completely like only what he likes and dislike what he dislikes? No, you're not going to. It's not the goal. It's not required. But it is required that you at least try to succeed to whatever extent that you can. And then, whenever you fail, meaning at the point where you just say, you know what? I'm fooling myself, I'm not a tzaddik, I still have attractions to things that I shouldn't, or I'm not hyper-motivated and passionate about all the things that I should be. Okay, fine, so that's the plan B, that's the second part of the oath. At least don't be a Russian, don't act on it, control your behavior. Yeah? Um, just a question, you know there was, sorry, I'm sorry, do you want to say something? Go ahead. A tzaddik made by the or they accomplish it? Are tzaddikim made that way, or do they accomplish it? Yeah, because you just said the short answer is that they're made that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they get no credit for their for their behavior. Yeah. So the banner me is doing a much harder job. Okay. So, so since you bring it up, in chapter one, one of the uh, sage sources from our sages that they, that the Altarebbe brings up is a Gemara from Baba Basra, where Eov contemplates, and he says. Master of the worlds, you created tzaddikim, you created roshayim. Now, I'm not going to get into what it means, you created roshayim, because that sounds funny. You created someone to be a rasha, so he's condemned, he's doomed to be a rasha. But let's get into this part. What does it mean, you created people to be tzaddikim? You created people to be tzaddikim means 
there are only very few people who will succeed to be emotionally aligned with Hashem's will for them 100% through and through. And that's something that is... You, it, it's, not, it's not that... If you didn't accomplish it or not, that you didn't work hard enough. You just... You weren't given that ability. It's oh, just, they did right. work to get it. They didn't just come here and... and no, no, no. They, 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 they're made that some way. Effort? No, they have some effort? No. Their effort is for other things. Okay. Yeah, we'll do like that. So when the soul comes down into the body, who does the work? Is the soul activating and making the body want to do good? Or is the soul silently in the body... Okay, the question is, who's doing the work? Is it the soul, or is it the body, the, the godly soul, the animal soul? And, and, and the truth is, it's a team effort. And remember that third soul that we spoke about, the nefesh asichlis, which is the chooser, the one who listens and interprets and plays diplomacy between godly soul and animal soul. So it's the totality of you. It's the whole package. The soul's not silent. It's active. For sure not. The soul's not silent. Yeah, but, but, but you have to be quiet in order to hear it. Yeah. And it, well, one more question, then we're going to finish up. Yeah. Oh, it's from God al that, that that's used. Uh, to, it's such a person, a tzaddik, in a way that uh, already defines tzaddik. The, the God al which is a concept in, in, in Chazal, um, there are levels of tzaddikim, like we spoke about before. Um, one explanation of tzaddik gomor is a unique person, one unique person in a generation. And then all other tzaddikim would be tzaddik veraloi. Okay, but anyways, I don't want to focus too much on tzaddik. I don't know, ladies, why are you interested in the tzaddik? What does it matter? Okay. The only thing, I, I want to wrap up now. Give me, give me ten more seconds here. The only thing you got to know about tzaddik is this. This, the only thing you got to know about tzaddik is this. There is a concept, this is the end of chapter 14, okay? The end of chapter 14 is, there is such a concept of emulating a tzaddik, emulating a tzaddik. What does it mean to emulate a tzaddik? What is the hallmark of the tzaddik? Actions. <coughs> emotions. Emotions. What is the hallmark of the tzaddik? Emotions. Emotional perfection. So there is a concept of emulating a tzaddik, which means there is a concept of cultivating purity of emotion, and at the same time, you should remember, that is not your obligation you do, or your goal. You do not have to achieve it. You emulate it. You try to work closer to it, but that is not required of you to, to actually achieve it. What is required is action, behavior, behavioral perfection. So we do emulate the tzaddik, we do try to refine our emotions to the extent that we can, but when invariably we hit our ceiling and we're not aligned emotionally with Hashem's will, we remain behaviorally aligned with Hashem's will at all times. Make sense? Yeah? Okay, alright.